Hello, everyone, and either welcome or welcome back to the Jen the Libertarian podcast. If you do like this, please rate, comment, and subscribe. You can find me on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Spotify, YouTube, and on my Patreon page, where you do get early access to episodes and exclusive content. I will put the link down in the show notes. So for this episode, I'm talking to Brian Kaplan. He is a professor of economics over at George Mason University and the author of several books. But specifically today, we're going to be talking about his latest book, Open Borders, the Science and Ethics of Immigration. And I wanted to do this sit down with Brian, mainly because I found the concept of the book really fascinating. I find the format of it very interesting. And a lot of the content within it is, while it is controversial, I mean, obviously, even within libertarian circles, the ideas of open borders are very, very, very controversial. But I feel like this book does a really good job of laying out the case for it, and Brian makes very, very good points as to why this is a good idea and how this would work. So, like I said, I wanted to sit down and talk to him about it. So, here it is, my conversation with Brian. So today I'm talking to Brian Kaplan, who is the author of many books, but specifically we're going to talk about his latest book today, and that is Open Borders, The Science and Ethics of Immigration. So... Hello. Welcome, Brian. Thanks very much for having me. Thanks for being here. So I, I'm, I'm so fascinated by this book, and I really did enjoy it. Just off the rip, we'll just go ahead and say that. I mean, everybody that listens to this already knows my opinions on immigration, but I did really enjoy this book. And I want to go ahead, just for the sake of the listeners, um, when we say open borders in this conversation and what Brian's talking about in his book, it's not the vague, nebulous sort of open borders that people throw around now. This is an actual advocation for the free movement of people across borders with no restrictions, actual, honest to God, open borders. So with all that being said, um, this is also not your typical book in that it is a picture book, for lack of a better term, <laughs> calling uh, calling non-fiction, it... Non-fiction, non-fiction graphic novel is the preferred term. There we go. Well, it's not a novel, though, either. It's it's so, real. So <laughs> it's still the preferred term. Uh, <laughs> so, you know, Truman Commodi's In Cold Blood, he described that as a non-fiction novel, and that's the genre that people think of this as. That works. So I'm curious, what's... Well, first off, what prompted you to do this book now? Because I don't know if you've noticed, but immigration's kind of a controversial topic. And what? Right, right. I mean, the, the truth is that I actually was planning on doing it well before Trump got elected. So, I, you know, people were talking about it before him, but it was not actually motivated by current events at all. What? prompted you to do it in this format because I do like it. I think it makes this a lot more accessible than it would be if it were just a regular nonfiction book of words. And so kind of what what was the thought process behind that? Right. Uh, so, I mean, I've been reading books like this for a very long time, for about tw- 20 years or so. Uh, you know, there are several are big inspiration to me, especially Larry Gonick's Cartoon History of the Universe, which is five volumes and does exactly what it says it's going to do. Uh, so reading these books, I realized, first of all, they can be at a very high intellectual level. They can be careful and accurate and yet also more effective at not just communicating but getting readers to remember what it is that they learned because it really is true that a good picture is worth a thousand words. So by combining words and pictures, you can uh, communicate more effectively. And that's really the main motivation. And then secondly, I just thought it was really fun and I wanted to try it. And then also for this particular topic, I often argue using thought experiments. And I noticed the thought experiments work really well when they're drawn rather than just described. So put that all together. And that was the reason why I did it this way. Cool. And I, and I like, because I do follow you on Twitter, I like when you, you retweet the pictures of kids reading the book, because it, it kind of mm-hmm. shows that, like, this this is a much more accessible sort mm-hmm. of way of addressing a topic that appeals to a much broader range of people than it would be if it was just a normal book. Yeah. So for all of my books, I try to write them for more than just fellow researchers. So I try to make all of my books appeal to... You know, generalists uh, to professors in other fields, to graduate students, and to good undergraduates, including people who used to be good undergraduates, like journalists, that kind of thing. But still, I've always felt like I couldn't go any further. 
And I, you know, my other books, you know, like if you were to give it to, an, you know, even an average undergraduate, I just think it would be too hard for them. For this book, I felt like I was able to keep my usual standards, but still expand the audience a lot. You know, all the way down, I would say, to precocious seven-year-olds. This is the only thing I've ever written where my five-year-old was looking over my shoulder, reading it as I wrote it. So I had an I had an idea of I've crack the audience open to a much greater degree than I ever had before. So that was really gratifying. And it was you know, part of what I hope, but I think it worked better than I was expecting. And getting into the book a bit, you start off with more of the sort of philosophical slash moral arguments for open borders, which I thought was a really interesting place to start. And I think it's also a really good setup for everything else that comes later on in the book. So Kind of give us a little bit of kind of insight into some of those arguments that are more of a philosophical argument for open borders. Right. So are you familiar with uh, philosopher Michael Humer? Yes. Yes, yes. So he wrote this book, uh, The Problem of Political Authority, which has been a huge influence on me. I still think this is by far the best work of libertarian political philosophy that I've ever encountered. It's the one that I am totally pleased to give to someone that doesn't agree at all and say, this is why I think what I think. Right. So in this book, um, Mike Humer says, look, there's no absolute libertarian principle that it would be reasonable to, to believe in, but it is very reasonable to believe in a libertarian presumption to say that if you're going to force someone to do something, you really ought to have a very good reason, right? So he says there's a presumption against the initiation of force, right? So rather than being an axiom, he says it's just a presumption. And then he goes through the world of politics with this lens saying, look, I'm open to the possibility that the libertarian approach is not a good idea, but it should still be where we start from. And then he does have a uh, separate essay called Is There a Right to Immigrate, where he basically applies the same idea and says, look, there is a moral presumption that if a person from anywhere on earth wants to live and work in another country, that he should be able to, right? Because why would you stop him? What exactly is it that he is doing that is so objectionable that it would be okay to say, no, sorry, it is illegal for you to be here, illegal for you to work here. And that's really where I start in the book and just say, look, this is the kind of thing, immigration restrictions are the kind of thing that requires not just an argument, but a very solidly based argument. And what what, uh, Mike Humor argues is, and what I pick up on is that Immigration restrictions are the kind of thing that requires a very solid justification, not just a casual one, not just this is our country, we can do whatever we want, but rather one where if you're saying that you're going to do this to an innocent human being anywhere on earth, the argument ought to be very strong. So I lay out the presumption in the first chapter and then I spend the next four chapters going over all the major efforts to rebut this presumption because, of course, At this point, open borders is an extremely frightening proposal for most people because we've had closed borders for about 100 years now. So, I mean, even if it worked in the past, there's still the question of could it still work today? And that really organizes the rest of the book because I spend each chapter taking seriously the complaints that people have and the fears that people have. At the same time, in the background, there's always the burden is on them, not me, to show that immigration restrictions are justified. Yeah, and I think that's a good place to start when you're arguing for open borders, which I am definitely more of an open borders kind of person. If if we have to have an immigration policy in this country, I would much more like it to be more like Ellis Island than what we have right now, especially especially what we have right now, because some of that's just atrocious, illegal, immoral, all of that. But I, I think when you go to make the economic argument, once you've made that philosophical argument that... Yes, you do have to really justify why you are saying that people don't have freedom of movement, especially if you're making this in a libertarian context. If you're making that argument, you need to have a very good reason why you want to restrict somebody's freedom of movement and freedom of association. So moving from those arguments, next we kind of move into more of the economic arguments. And the one that I really like, and this is one that I think is a really good rebuttal to a lot of the economic arguments, is that basically 
in this system of open borders that you would be increasing the global wealth because you would be allowing people to go to the places where their skill set is most needed and could be most impactful, most utilized. So kind of kind of give us an idea of how that would work out. All right. So one of the main reasons people move, I would say actually probably the main reason people move is to make more money. Now, if you know basic economics, when you think about this a bit, you say, well, wait a second. So they're moving uh, to make more money. This means that they're going from a place where they're paid less to a place where they're paid more. Then why are they paid more in the destination than they are in the origin? And the answer, of course, is that their productivity is higher. Right. So the reason why people move from one place to another to get a better job and the reason why employers in the next place are willing to offer it is because you do more for them when you arrive than you were doing for the people that you were working with before you came. And then the key question is, all right, how much is the gain? And this is where there's been a lot of empirical research. And the answer is the gain from immigration between countries is enormous. Right? It's very common to see that someone's earnings and then presumably their productivity as well multiply by a factor of three or five or ten or even twenty. Right now, to a normal person, there this is cause for panic, and they say, "My God, Haitians can make 10, twenty times as much money in Miami as they as, the, as they do at home. What what can we do to keep them out?" But to anyone that thinks economically, it's like, well, wait a second. You're saying that we can make their productivity 20 times higher by just letting them move from Haiti to Miami? This is fantastic, right? And again, this is not increasing GDP in the trivial sense that you will get more people in your country and then GDP goes up. This is in the substantive sense where if you were to think of the combined GDPs of the receiving country and the sending country, moving people from the poorer countries, the richer ones, raises the total of the two. Why? Because you have moved a resource from a place where it is unproductive to a place where it's productive. I mean, it's really just the international version of the big movement from rural areas to urban areas in the last 200 years uh, because if you were to just go and keep people that uh, were in farm areas in farm areas for their whole lives, they would be stuck doing very low productivity tasks. But because they're allowed to move inside of the United States, people have relocated. And in relocating, they haven't just helped themselves. They've helped uh, the society because they are more productive where they are than where they would have been. Yeah, and another point that I like to bring up is when you let people move, I mean, and you can make this argument, obviously, even within the United States, you can ask somebody, well, why did you move from this city to that city or from this state to that state? And usually it's, well, because of work. But an argument that people make that when you look at it, I guess, strictly from a national perspective, and I guess that's why they're looking at it when they make this argument, it makes sense. But when you look at it from a global perspective, it really doesn't. And that's the idea that immigrants come here, they make money, and then they send it home. It's like, well, yeah, well, now not only has that immigrant improved their lot in life, now they're improving the people back home's life because now those people have more money. So altogether, everybody's like the the rising tide that lifts all the ships. Now everybody's yeah, has yeah. a better standard of living. Right, right. Absolutely. So one common fear about immigration is brain drain that the most talented workers will just leave a country and then abandon the people that are there. And the reality is really quite the opposite. When people migrate, they normally send home amounts of money that are fantastic in the eyes of the people back home. And so you wind up getting benefits not only to the people who migrate, but also to the people who stay behind. And in Open Borders, I talk about how the best example of this uh, is probably Puerto Rico, where in 1902, the US Supreme Court ruled that there were open borders with Puerto Rico. And since that time, over half of all Puerto, uh, people of Puerto Rican descent have left. But if you go to Puerto Rico, you'll see that it is virtually the richest place in the whole Caribbean, uh, whereas before it would not have been. Uh, so it really looks like the, you know, not, you know, the remittances, but also the economic connections with the U.S. have been a tremendous gain, uh, even, to the, even to the Puerto Ricans that have remained. Yeah, and, that's, it, and like I said, it's, it's an example of when you think about it globally, obviously, you, when you have immigrants that come here, they send money home, and then all of a sudden, everything gets a little bit better. But I want to move from that to what tends to be the first and most 
oft-cited libertarian argument against immigration, and that is the you-cannot-have-a-welfare-state-and-open-borders argument, which you do address in the book, and you point out that, horror of horrors, Milton Friedman was wrong. That is correct, yes. So I can't tell you how many people have emailed me to say, well, clearly you've never heard Milton Friedman's observation about this. Actually, I have heard it, and I have a whole chapter where I argue with him. Right. So the key issue here is that it's possible that your welfare state is so extensive that open borders would lead to a total disaster, but it's something where you have to actually do math in order to find out whether that's true. Right? Because if there was a welfare state that gave people a penny a year, this would not be a devastating argument against open borders. Right? So you really need to go and do this dry work of looking at the numbers, and in the book I did. Right, And I tried to not just do the cheesy thing of finding people that agree with me and then reporting it. Instead, I tried to find the most reputable and solid sources. So I build this chapter heavily on the National Academy of Sciences report. And anyway, what they do there is they try to estimate the net taxes of, or rather the you know, net fiscal burden of an immigrant. This is where you go and you get an estimate of all the taxes they're going to pay appropriately adjusted for the timing of the payments and then subtract out the cost of all the services that they're expected to use, right? And then come up with a final overall number. And when you're doing this, you also want to take into account the fact that they'll have kids because the kids go to school, but also eventually become taxpayers, right? And just to describe it, you begin to realize how complex the question is. But in any case, the uh, final National Academy of Sciences estimate comes up with uh, immigrants to the U.S. are a net positive. Even low-skilled immigrants are net positive as long as they come when they're young adults. Um, now, this is something where if you're skeptical, it's very hard to convince you because I'm the source. So can you really believe what I'm saying? Uh, the main thing I can do there is say at least it's a lot more plausible than you would think. Uh, first of all, because a lot of government services are what economists call non-rival meaning that whatever you think about them, their cost does not depend on population or does not depend much on population. So whatever you think about national defense, if we had a baby boom, no person, regardless of political view, is likely to say, let's go and make more nukes to defend the new babies, right? Because you have a sense that you can defend a, a much larger population with the same arsenal that you've got, right? And that goes for a whole lot of what government does. The cost doesn't depend much on population which means that an immigrant could be or could be paying a lot less in taxes than a native and still be a net positive, just like the person who goes to the movie theater at the matinee is increasing the profit of the movie theater because the seats are already there. So even though you're paying a low price, it's better than nothing. And that's a lot of what's going on with immigration. And then also another reason why immigrants turn out to be a much better deal than it seems uh, is because the U.S. welfare state focuses primarily on the elderly rather than the poor, and immigrants tend to be young. So even poor, low-skilled immigrants or low-skilled immigrants who are eligible for poverty-based benefits are still many decades away from old-age-based benefits, and that, again, tips the scales in favor of U.S. taxpayers. Yeah, and I think that's a point that doesn't get made often enough, is that usually when you have immigrants, you're really getting them in like that kind of sweet spot age-wise where they're already been educated in whatever country they were from. They come here, they work, and even if you do have either the very young or the very old, usually they're coming in, like obviously if you're a child, you're probably coming here with your parent yeah. and they're taking care of you. And mm -hmm. then the elderly, usually you have it from family migration where, again, you have somebody here waiting to take care of you. Yeah, so absolutely. And again, especially for the education. Uh, now, it may seem like there's a bit of trickery because if two immigrants come they have a, and they, they have a kid when they're here, the kid gets counted as a native, and then it seems like you are just trying to you know, do a magic trick to distract people from the fact that the kid wouldn't have been here if his parents hadn't immigrated here. But the key thing to realize here is that when you're doing this accounting, that if you had a family of three natives, then all of them would have had their education paid for by – U.S. taxpayers, or if you have a family of two immigrant parents and a child, then U.S. taxpayers are only paying for one of the three. And again, that tips the scales in immigrants' favor. Yeah, because I mean, money-wise, that's a better deal. 
obviously. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So these are, you know, now again, these are all reasons why Milton Friedman uh, was overstating the case, but then you still have to go and look at the numbers and say, well, all right, well, maybe that, that's all true, but still, we have a progressive tax system, so if you're low-skilled, then maybe it's not going to come out. So anyway, this is what it, these are the number the numbers are for the U.S. For other countries, they could be different. Yeah, and I think also in that section, there is the argument about as far as becoming somebody who does end up on welfare, what the what the statistics are versus immigrants versus native born and with very cute little pictures of Milton Friedman with babies, which mm-hmm. I, I enjoyed. But that's another argument that I think is worth bringing up, too, because obviously when you have a native born child, you don't really know what that child's going to turn out to be like. I mean, they may end up being on on welfare. They may end up being the nef- next Jeff Bezos. Like, you don't know. And it's kind of the same way with immigrants. You don't really know at, at the onset how this is all going to turn out. Yeah. So, I mean, the point that I make is, you know, any libertarian who is open to restrictions on immigration should also be open to, to restrictions on reproduction. And the same way that you could say, well... You know, immigrant from Mexico, low-skilled, seems like we should be worried they're going to go on welfare, so we don't want them here. Same point applies if there's a low-skilled native that's having a child, and you can say, well, you know, given the background of the family and the parents and marital status, seems like this kid's probably going to be a burden. So then would it be okay to say that such people are not allowed to have children? right? And that's the argument that I have with Milton, because philosophically it really is the same issue of, well, if you've got a prediction about what this person is going to be like and should you focus on the welfare state itself or should you say, well, the welfare states, we're stuck with it and so now we're going to use libertarianism as an excuse for very deep abridgments of human freedom. And again, you know, to my mind, saying that a person isn't able to have a child is in the same ballpark as saying that you can't live in the country that you want and can't work in the country that you want. So these are both, these are not minor abridgments this isn't like saying there's a law against raw milk or something like that or what's the big deal. This is going to some of the most fundamental decisions a human being will ever make. Yeah, and when you start making that argument, it really kind of steps right up to the line of some pretty squicky arguments about who does and does not get to have kids. Well, which, yeah. yeah that's... Or who does and does not get to live and work here. Exactly, and – Another argument that kind of ties into that as far as immigrant versus native born is the voting argument, which is that, oh, well, we can't let the immigrants in because, well, they're going to vote the wrong way, which usually people mean that is they're going to vote Democrat. But I like to phrase it that way because I think that it kind of gets more to the heart of the issue that these people are going to vote wrong. And then you kind of got to justify okay, so that's your rationale for keeping somebody out is they're not going to vote the way you want them to. But there's also that native-born baby argument, too, that like, okay, well, who's to say when these babies grow up what, who they're going to vote for? And so, again, are what what are you really proposing here? Like, Yeah, so there's not a lot of philosophical consistency in arguments against immigration because people want to focus on here's my idea, I want to restrict immigration, here's why, rather than stepping back and saying, okay, if that argument is true, what else should we be doing? Uh, and, you know, it's, it's easy to understand why people don't want to do that because it takes you into some very uncomfortable places. Uh, but, yeah, but again, and what I do in the book is say, all right, well, you could very well be worried about immigrants voting the wrong way, so why don't we go and take a look at what the actual evidence is? So it's, uh, it is now true that immigrants are heavily democratic, but what's striking to me is that this was not true 30 years ago. It seems like it's just in the last 30 years that Republicans have lost immigrants, have lost the immigrant vote. And it's not just because it's non-white immigration. So white immigrants are also very heavily democratic, uh, which then starts you wondering, so what exactly is it that Republicans have done that has so alienated immigrants? And when you phrase it that way, then I think it's not so hard to answer. Right? It's that Republicans have spoken very poorly of immigrants and been very disrespectful to them, and naturally, even immigrants that otherwise would be natural Republican voters don't want anything to do with them because they feel like they are not appreciated. So in the, in the, the book, I talk about Indian Americans, so not American Indians, but rather Americans from the country of India, and point out, look, this is, by most measures, the most socially conservative group in America. Also now the very richest, and yet they're 80% Democrats. 
So how why would that be other than Republicans have taken people that would normally vote for them based on their issue views and made them feel very unwelcome? Uh, but then, I, you know, so party aside, I then go into the actual issue of views of immigrants uh, because, as I said, there's a, you know, a lot of evidence that when the voters that you're competing for change, then the parties themselves change. So, you know, a, a Massachusetts Republican is very different from a Texas Republican and a Texas Democrat is very different from Massachusetts Democrats. So go over that and come away saying uh, it does seem to be true that the foreign-born are a little less libertarian than natives, so they are more socially conservative and more economically liberal overall, but it's not a night and day difference because, of course, natives are highly unlibertarian as well. So it really doesn't do to point out all the way that foreigners are unlibertarian when you know that natives are highly unlibertarian too. You want to look at the marginal difference, and I say the marginal difference isn't very much. Yeah, and it's also kind of a lazy argument in my estimation because, okay, if you're worried about people not voting the way you want them to vote, well, then maybe go pitch yourself to these people mm -hmm. and also understand why these people are voting Democrat. When you look at if – you, if you think that those are your two options are Democrat and Republican, well, obviously, if you're an immigrant, you're not really going to go Republican right now because they're not very cool with immigrants right now. Yeah. But moving on from that to making the arguments about culture. And this is one that comes up a lot more now. I think we've we've moved on from the economic anxiety portion to the cultural anxiety portion of being anti-immigration. And the arguments that these people make that, oh, these immigrants are going to come here and they're going to change the culture of America, which I don't even know what that is supposed to mean. Because what else is American culture but an amalgamation of a bunch of other people's cultures? But you do go over and address those particular concerns. So kind of give us a little bit of the answers to that question of people who worry about this from a cultural perspective. Right. So culture is such a vague term that you really have to sit around and figure out what exactly is it the people are worried about. I have a separate chapter on politics, so I put that in every, everything about political culture into a separate chapter. But then when you're thinking about, right, so other kinds of culture, uh, so the easily measurable stuff is language, right? And so that's something where there's good data and where we can say confidently that Second-generation immigrants continue to acquire fluence, English fluency at near total levels, so there's very little to see there. Uh, then there's some social science research on trust, saying that the U.S. is, is a high-trust country and good countries are high-trust countries, and this is really important for remaining a good country. And I go into the evidence there and saying it's true that poor countries do tend to have low trust, but... There's a lot of assimilation again, so second generation seems to look very much like natives. And then furthermore, to say that probably the, the, you know, the people that are really worried about trust, they're just exaggerating. Um, you know, so I, I have a panel saying, you know, we need enough trust to make credit cards work. That's fine. Um, and then just thinking about you know, other, other possible cultural effects. And then, you know, there I say a lot of what we get out of immigration is the smorgasbord of options and opportunities. Although, I mean, probably the most original point that I have in the chapter is to say that, you know, people often think that immigration worked a lot better 100 years ago because immigrants assimilated and now they don't. And what I say is that while it's true that it's easier now to move to another country and not assimilate because of modern communications, modern transportation, but at the same time, modern communication transportation have already pre-assimilated much of the world. And by pre-assimilation, I mean that people have become Americanized before they even show up, right? So 100 years ago, if you have a Sicilian migrant, he probably has never heard any English spoken. He's not familiar with the U.S. culture at all. He maybe has never seen electricity, right? And then he shows up at Ellis Island, and that is real culture shock, whereas today, American media has so permeated the world, and English is so commonly spoken all over the world, that there is, there's over a billion people in non-English speaking countries that are really just ready to hit the ground running in a way that they were not a century ago. And even looking at how migration patterns into the U.S. work even 100 years ago and today, I think 
a lot of people look at how immigrants come in and what communities they go into as, oh, they're trying to self-segregate. And I would say it's not self-segregation. It's if you're moving to a new country and say you don't know the language, you don't know the culture, of course you're going to want to go live around people who you have some familiarity with so that you can get on your feet and kind of get a feel for what American life is like around people who you share a common language with and you share a common culture with just for kind of ease of entrance reasons, not necessarily that you yeah. want to self-segregate. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I mean, like, you know, I would just, I would say you could call it self-segregation for very innocent reasons, right? You know, it's not that they dislike other people here, but that they, it's easier for them to go and, and be with other people from their own country. And again, you know, like, so the concern I could understand would be if their kids wound up remaining uh, segregated in this way, but evidence says that they don't. You know, the main difference between Spanish-speaking migrants and everyone else is that Spanish speakers retain Spanish for an extra generation. So whereas Koreans would barely be able to speak Korean by second generation, second-generation Spanish speakers are able to continue speaking Spanish well, and it takes to the third generation before they lose it. Uh, but it doesn't mean that they don't speak English. They do. Yeah, and there's even a little pain in here about the the lament that every – immigrant grandparent has that by the third generation their grandkids it's oh they don't even know the culture they don't even speak the language they've never been back to the home country and yeah, so yeah, just, the, yeah, the way that i put it is if you want the real story of assimilation talk to an immigrant parent and see what they say right because when you talk to any immigrant parents it's a story of how the kid doesn't appreciate my culture very much and they say that's a much more accurate perspective of what's going on versus going and reading a scary story in the newspaper. Yeah, and it, it speaks to the fact that assimilation is something that happens culturally. And obviously, if you're born here, you're going to be Americanized because this is all you know. But I think a lot of people kind of don't view it that way. They they view sort of culture as something more, I guess, I don't want to say on a genetic level, but something a little more hardwired, and it's really mm -hmm. not. Yeah. Yeah. So you know, another thing is striking to me, you know, like, like for a libertarian podcast is I think about the culture of my parents. So my parents are both in their 80s. They're born in the 30s. And I think about how much has American culture changed since they were children. And I would say the answer is it has changed beyond recognition. The world that they knew is gone. The culture that they cared about is dead. There's just a few people left who see things the way that they did. And you could say, well, were they robbed of their culture? And I'd say, no, they weren't robbed because culture is other people. Culture is other people. They uh, So people of their generation failed to convince the subsequent generation that it was worth continuing in the same cultural tradition that they were in. And so new ideas went out, and now we're where we are, where my parents are hopelessly out of touch with the with, with current culture. And you know, my response to people who don't like this is, well, if you don't like it, then sell your culture more effectively, right? It's not something where you're entitled to have other people believe whatever it is that you believed. And you know, no more than you're entitled to have people continue accepting your religion or anything else. Um, and because, you know, as I said, the slogan, culture is other people. You can't have a right to your culture because that requires that other people live and do and speak and think as you want. And that's their right to not do so. Yeah, and obviously I agree with that. And there's also kind of this new strain of conservatism popping up that wants it to, to kind of tie it back to what you were saying, wants the state to enforce their particular idea of what culture should look like. And that's a bit frightening. <laughs> and, and, that, and what you just said is a good counter argument to that in that if you want people to behave the way you want them to behave, then you need to go sell them on that behavior, not say this is how it has to be because this is how I want it to be and that's the end of that. Right, and it's such a short-sighted argument from almost any perspective because, you know, as I like to say, whenever you're thinking about giving power to government, you should always remember that the other power, the other party will be in power roughly half the time, right? So if government has the power to control culture, then half the time it's going to be Democrats that are pushing their version of culture. Right. I mean, I would say even now it looks to me much more like it's the democratic version of culture that's getting pushed. And when Republicans say the government should be going and doing this, I would think, well, how about just stop pushing what it's pushing now? Because it's not pushing what Republicans want. 
you know, just let people live however it is that they want to live. And if that involves Drag Queen Story Hour, fine. But, yeah. Um, another topic that you pick up on in the book, and this is another one that gets brought up a lot, and quite frankly, this is an argument that just makes me want to stab myself in the temple with a rusty butter knife because I hate it so much, and that is the IQ question. Mm-hmm. So go ahead and just once and for all, please refute this stupid, stupid, stupid argument. Right. Uh, well, so I don't consider the argument stupid, actually. I mean, I think it's the best one that the critics of immigration have brought up. And then I try to treat it respectfully and say that it's just overstated. Uh, so it comes down to this. If you go and take IQ tests and administer them around the world, what you'll see is that richer countries and more successful countries tend to be higher IQ countries. Now, you could say this is just coincidence, but there's a lot of evidence within countries that people who are smarter do better, and it seems like it's not so hard to understand why, uh, because the world is complicated, and the smarter you are, the more readily you deal with this complicated world, right? And also, we see things like smarter people are better at cooperating with each other in experiments and so on. So my colleague Garrett Jones has a whole book on this, Hive Mind, and it's a it's a very good book. Uh, but what I say in response is two things. First of all, just the num- the math is off. So if you go and take Jones's own estimates and figure out what would happen if we just moved everyone on Earth to the United States, it still winds up saying there are enormous gains for me for mankind, enormous gains. And then secondly. There is the problem that 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 uh, this does assume, that the, this argument in general does assume that it's all that success is causing or that, that IQ is causing success rather than success causing IQ, and uh, now Jones goes over a number of ways in which it could be that poverty is depressing IQ rather than IQ causing poverty, uh, but he doesn't have any actual you know, numbers on how big the effect is. So what I wind up doing is taking research on international adoption and using this to get an idea about how much of the problem is actually reverse causation where it's poverty that is reducing IQ, reducing human intelligence. And I can go into the details if you want, but I come away with a minimum 40% of the IQ deficit between rich and poor countries is caused by the poverty itself which means that one of the best ways of increasing human intelligence is open borders, letting people escape poverty and horrible conditions in their home countries at, at, at the earliest possible age so that when they grow up, they are not mentally stunted, right? I mean, essentially what we can see is that quite clearly is that growing up in very poor countries causes physical stunting. This you can just measure with height, weights, head circumference, that kind of thing. But... There's also similarly good evidence that growing up in a very poor country causes intellectual stunting. And therefore, what I say is that actually, if you really care about human intelligence, you should want open borders so you can rescue all of this human talent from being damaged during childhood. Yeah, and and it's kind of a truism here in the United States that obviously when you are well-fed, you're well-rested, you kind of have a lot more mental bandwidth to take tests or to learn or to expand your knowledge in whatever way. And so I do think there is a very good argument to be made for that in that once somebody is in a place that has more creature comforts and your basic needs are being met, then of course IQ scores are going to go up because you your basic needs are being met. You're not having to take that mental bandwidth and kind of use it towards trying to fulfill your basic needs because those have already been fulfilled. And obviously, when when you're in a better living situation, you you physically improve, obviously. And I think there's a good argument for saying that you mentally improve too. Right. I mean, now, crucially, a lot of this evidence says that it's adoption at birth from poor countries to rich countries that leads to these large benefits. So, I mean, it really is the case that if you've grown up in horrible poverty and then when you're 20, you're brought over to Sweden – you're going to remain short for the rest of your life, and you probably are also going to be mentally stunted compared to where you could have been. Uh, so it's not just current conditions. It really does seem like there is uh, it is crucial to get kids at a very young age out of these dire circumstances. Yeah, and I think there's a good argument. And I wonder, well, I mean, I'm sure somebody has already done this, but obviously 
malnutrition stunts people physically. I would assume it also mm-hmm. stunts people mentally yes. too. So after a certain point, like you can't really reverse that. But mm-hmm. there is still something to be said for letting older people, older people, but people in their twenties immigrate mm-hmm. because I mean there are still benefits to be had. Obviously. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. So you know, I just don't want to oversell things. So. Um, you know, what I what I what I think we can we can say with great confidence is that if you can get kids out of the third world, that will totally change their futures. Uh, for adults, a lot of the damage has already been done, uh, but it doesn't mean they can't still greatly improve their lives and, of course, give their kids a vastly better life in all ways. Yeah, and I want to move kind of to the end of the book because at the end, um, you make arguments, obviously, that presuppose like, okay, say you read everything else in this book and you're still either not convinced. Or you're more of an incrementalist and you're not quite so yeehaw open borders right now, but maybe sometime in the future, you give various sorts of keyhole solutions where it's not full on open borders, everybody gets to come in, but it is better than what we currently have right now and could possibly someday in the future get us to the open borders. So what are some of those sort of keyhole solutions for people who aren't entirely on board with this argument yet? Right, right. So just to back up, uh, the, this whole keyhole solutions uh, concept comes from modern surgery, uh, where, you know, of course, during the Civil War, amputation is what you do to people. But over, over time, doctors have become more concerned with the collateral damage of what they're doing and trying to make people better without simultaneously making them worse or killing them in the process of trying to heal them. So, and a big innovation is what's called keel surgery. We try to do the smallest incision necessary in order to actually deal with the problem. All right. Uh, now, economic journalist Tim Harford has applied this idea to policy and he said, similarly, if there is a problem with what markets are doing, why not design a government remedy that is as narrowly tailored to the specific problem as possible so that we don't wind up having much higher costs in the bargain? And I try to take up this idea in the book. So essentially it just says, look, for any complaint about immigrants, let's tell me exactly what the complaint is. And then rather than just using this as an excuse to rationalize what we're already doing, why don't we tailor a, an immigration policy to deal with these very specific complaint? So for example, if your concern is that immigrants are going on welfare, well, you could either say immigrants can't come, can't come to the country, or you can say that immigrants aren't eligible for welfare. Right? And that way you address the concern without going and immiserating all the people that would have been happy to come, even if they couldn't get welfare. Right? And I go through a bunch of other approaches along these lines. Essentially, it just comes down to someone has a complaint. Let's go and try to deal with the complaint in the cheapest and lowest and, and most, humane way, most humane way possible. So you know, similarly, if you're worried about immigrants not learning English, you're fine. You can come if you know English. Right? And you know, what do you think about that? It's like, wow, well, if that were true, then probably there'd be an enormous learning of English all around the world. All right, fine. Well, that solves the problem. Yeah, and I, and I think that it kind of – it helps too in a way of trying to really get to what the root is with what people really are concerned with as far as immigration is to try to come up with these keyhole solutions. I mean you got to drill down to the root cause. Mm-hmm. And so I, I think there is a lot of value in that too. Right. Yeah, so I mean in a way like, – I've written about keyhole solutions before so – I honestly have not noticed them being all that persuasive to people, but I think it's still very intellectually helpful in nailing down what really is your complaint. And ultimately, I think that the complaint is partly it's you know xenophobia of just being afraid of foreigners. I think a lot of it is just simple misanthropy of just looking at human beings as problems and just having a presumption that a new person is going to be somehow bad, right? And I think anyway, it's, it's useful just to get that out in out in the open. Although, you know, at the same time, you know, there are of course plenty of sincere concerns and I try to go and talk to people in that way as well. Yeah, and I try to take people who have issues with immigration in as best of faith as humanly possible because I I, I try to think that people do have very legitimate concerns, but I think especially when you start drilling down, a lot of this does end up going to some pretty icky places. And while 
that's not a very fun conversation to have. I guess it is one that we do need to have because, I mean, if that is your general concern, if it's xenophobia, if it's you're Islamophobic, if you're anything like that, then that's something that needs to be discussed too, even though it's not a very fun conversation. Right. So I didn't really talk about racism in the book. This is a common accusation against people who are against immigration. To me, it just seems overstated because we don't even have open borders with Canada. So I don't think that's racism. I think you say it's it's xenophobia, Uh, although it's misanthropy. Just you know, having a negative presumption about people, I think there's a lot of that that's really going on. And that, and I think, especially with immigration, it's one of those topics that it's one, it's a very complicated topic to really kind of wrap your head around. And it's one that once people kind of have an opinion on it, it kind of just stops right there and you just kind of stick with that opinion and you don't really ever rationally think it through to see if this actually makes sense with your political or personal philosophy or if it if it even makes sense when like just logistically if it ever makes sense. So that's I think that's part of it too. It's just it's a really difficult topic to understand. Right. Well, I mean, again, it's one where I think people are just so emotional that it's very hard to communicate. I mean, ultimately, I don't think that it is that intellectually difficult. Like I said, I think that a precocious seven-year-old could read my book and understand a lot of it. But the problem is this topic, people just get so emotional. And they really are often fairly desperate to go and come up with some rationalization. So, I mean, the one that's most striking to me is all the libertarians who start saying, well, this is our country, so we have a right to decide who comes here and who doesn't come here. And it's like, hmm, so if this is our country, does this mean we have a right to decide whether foreign products come here? Does it mean we, we have a right to decide which religions are practiced here? And when you start doing that, say, well, wait a second. And you hear you're starting with what sounds like a libertarian principle and you're ending up with a totalitarian view of government. Because if it really is true that a country is the collective property of the citizens, then – Everything that governments do that seems oppressive is actually just a legitimate exercise of the rights of our club to govern itself, right? And you wind up going from being a libertarian to being a really totalitarian socialist if you actually take the argument seriously. Now, of course, I've no, I know of no libertarians that actually follow through on this. So it's more of an ad hoc, well, this is our country, so we can keep people out if we want. It's like, well, if, if we can do whatever we want with our with our country – then why are any of your other arguments valid? Yeah, and that's what I mean when I think people don't really think it through rationally because obviously if you say that, you just stop right there like, okay, this is our country. We get to decide this. Okay, keep going down that rabbit hole and see if you really like where it leads you and then kind of maybe back up and readjust your priors a little bit to make them more in line with what you say that you believe in philosophically. Yeah, that would be nice. Yeah. <laughs> it, w- it would be nice if a lot of people sat down and thought about some of the things that they propose and really think it through before saying it and not be like, no, maybe not, guys. But I do want to kind of finish up and touch back on something that you just brought back up and to kind of bring it back to the beginning of the episode is the simplicity of this book. I really I, I like it because this makes the topic a lot easier to understand, I think, than it would in any other format. And when I say that immigration is a difficult topic, it's like I try to explain immigration to people, but even just our system of immigration is so convoluted that it's like, okay, how much time do you have for me to explain just asylum or just the visa process or just family migration? Because it's all, it's, complicated and weird and people's eyes start glazing over. So I I just want to say I really like the simplicity of this book. And I feel like for people who don't spend a lot of time thinking about the topic of immigration or the topic of borders or really spend time kind of intellectually breaking down what their thoughts are on it, I think this book is a really good primer for that. Yeah, uh, thank you. Yeah, mm-hmm. I agree. I mean, to me, I mean, immigration is complicated, but more important than it being complicated is that it's emotional. So if people are calm, then you can go over complicated issues or you can say, well, it's complicated, but the heart of it is that it's really hard to get into the U.S. legally, right? But if people are 
filled with rage, then it, it's very hard to learn anything. Um, so, and I know about this from firsthand experience because my dad is probably the angriest critic of immigration that I know. And you know, every conversation with him really just goes in a round robin of he complains, and then you say, well, that complaint's not really true, and then he has another complaint, and that's not really true, and then finally he just cycles back to the first complaint as if you hadn't talked to him in the first time, and he is so visibly upset whenever he's talking about it, and I think he's far from the only such person. Yeah, and that's that could be a whole nother discussion in and of itself because that's something that I've never really understood getting viscerally upset about immigration. But then again, I think this also goes to a lot of my priors. And I think it also goes into a lot of where you're from, how you were brought up, what kind of culture you were brought up in. Like I've never lived someplace that wasn't multicultural. So to me, it's kind of like, well, yeah, immigrants exist. What's the big deal? So, but like I said, that's, that's a whole nother conversation. So I'm going to go ahead and wrap this one up though. So Go ahead, tell people where they can find you, where they can find your book, all that stuff. All right. So I am uh, Brian Kaplan, and my website is bkaplan.com. And the easiest place to get my book is Amazon. So I would probably just do that. Although, of course, you could go down to a physical bookstore and get it there, too. And, of course, I will put a link to the book in the show notes so that you guys can go purchase it because I highly recommend it, and you should. So... Thank you, Brian. And it's only fourteen eighty six on Amazon, so let me point that out. Uh, the hardcover is the same price as the paperback now. I don't know why. Oh, I didn't. Even, I I think I have the paperback, but I paid more than that for it. Wait a minute. <laughs> well, that's capitalism for you. <laughs> Wait long enough, and things will go on sale on Amazon. Is the the moral of that story? <laughs> so, thank you again, Brian, for sitting down and talking to me. My pleasure. Thanks a lot. Thanks. So that was my conversation with Brian Kaplan. I hope you guys enjoyed it as much as I enjoy making it. I do always like doing these interviews. And I do, like I said, highly recommend this book. Even if you're somebody who doesn't entirely agree with the idea of open borders, there's at least a lot here to think about and things to kind of mull over and see if there is anything that might potentially change your mind or move the needle a little bit. But at this point, I'm going to go ahead and wrap this up. So as always... If you did make it this far, thank you for listening. And if you do like this, please rate, comment, and subscribe. You can find me on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Spotify, YouTube, and on my Patreon page. Take care, and until next time.